Welcome to A History Most Queer. I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook, here to brighten up your history hump day with a story about some queer culture and history. November, which is Native American Heritage Month, is winding down, and we've been honoring our first American siblings and forebears. On top of this being the last week of November, it is also the last official episode for the first season of this podcast. I've had a lot of fun learning how to use, and misuse, some recording equipment and editing software. Likewise, learning about events and persons that I was maybe a bit familiar with or completely unaware of has been a treat for me personally, and I hope for all of you listening out there. With all of that being said, we should probably get into the subject of this week's episode. Barbara Cameron was an activist, artist, photographer, filmmaker, and author who fought for lesbian, two-spirit folk, those affected by HIV-AIDS, and many, many others throughout her life. Yes, she had a half-dozen careers. Barbara May Cameron was born on the 22nd of May, 1954, on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. She was born into the Hunkpapa, one of the seven council fires of the Lakota Nation. She would be raised mostly by her grandparents on that reservation. They would teach her from an early age that she was special. Life could be harsh on the reservation. Barbara's parents and grandparents worked hard as cattle ranchers to try and make ends meet. In the classroom, she was really able to excel. This is despite often having had suicidal thoughts. While her grandparents did all they could to boost her sense of self-worth, she saw herself less as special and more as different. To keep herself alive and thriving, she threw herself into academic pursuits and began to change her mindset on being different as a negative. She would recall later in life that in the ninth grade she was so far ahead of my classmates academically. Her grandparents encouraged her excelling, and in many ways she would credit them for her success as they made her feel special, and that there was nothing that she could not succeed at so long as she set her mind to it. North Dakota would not anchor her in place, and she went to New Mexico to study at the Institute of American Indian Arts at Santa Fe. It would not take long, however, for her to do as many other queer folks did in the late 1960s and into the 70s, and that would be to make the pilgrimage to San Francisco. In 1973, she would enter the San Francisco Art Institute, While the glitter of the queer mecca would shine brightly at first, Barbara would soon enough 
feel a deep void within herself. It was this kind of disconnection that would lead to the political and social organizing that would change the world. Homophobia and racism caused people from various backgrounds to work together to carve out a safe space. After all, this is the time when legends such as Harvey Milk and Jean Cordova, shout out to episode 26, were making their magic, organizing and running for office. The optimism that a world were hiding in closets or fearing racist attacks was a collective belief for those in the Bay Area. Barbara was not the only two-spirit person working for that community's needs. People like Beverly Little Thunder, Phil Tingley, and Randy Burns, who would co-found GAI, Gay American Indians, in 1975 with Barbara, would start their work becoming leaders in their communities. Despite starting off as rather shy, she quickly found her voice as she started community organizing and becoming involved with politics. She would also use her skills as a writer, taking on subjects with a fearlessness that might have seemed out of character for her back in North Dakota. Like saplings breaking through the soil in spring, various queer organizations would spring up in the 1970s. GAI would form with only three people, but soon grew into an organization with over 150 members in six months. It was the first organization devoted to gay and lesbian First Americans. GAI would be desperately needed, as many of those early LGBTQIA organizations were overwhelmingly dominated by white people. First American, Asian, and black queer folks often felt left out or pushed to the margins. The Human Rights Campaign, which is still going strong, at that time was very white, and minority groups needed a place of their own rather than having to constantly play the ambassador to whichever ethnic group or even queerness that they inhabited outside of the gay male white sphere. Political organizing was not just a series of meetings with city councilors. GAI was well known for having outrageous parties and drag shows. But all of these events were not just fun for the hell of it. A true community with strong ties was being formed, and the needle on progress was starting to move. GAI would help provide access to counseling, healthcare, and housing, which also connected queer First Americans to other groups in the burgeoning Red Power movement. Just like Black Power movements during this same period, these groups were trying to bring about a more equitable world where people would not have to live in fear of violence or dismissal from the local and national political dialogues. Likewise, having social outlets and resources, which they could proudly call their own, would engender a sense of power and self-worth within them. Barbara Cameron and Randy Burns, who was a northern Paiute man, would form GAI just a few years after the famous occupation of Alcatraz that happened 
from November of 1969 through to June of 1971. They were electrified by the voices coming from fellow Native folks that were calling for an end to the terrible colonial tactics and wished to likewise make it known that the LGBTQIA community was not a white folks-only situation. For many people in the United States, and for that matter, the wider world, first Americans were not seen as contemporary people, but rather as caricatures of a time long since past. One needs only to think about that famous anti-littering advertisement where an Italian-American man is dressed up in tribal regalia that is reminiscent more of the 1870s rather than the 1970s. Tribal people are not frozen like an insect in amber, but rather dynamic and evolving, just like everyone in every other society. This was only one of the many reasons that GAI had to exist. How could the greater gay liberation movement factor in Native people if the majority of folks are not even aware of their existence outside of a terrible Western movie starring John Wayne? Another infuriating problem was discrimination in the bar and club scene. Back in the days before Tinder and Grinder, queer people relied on these oases of acceptance to feel comfortable, to be seen, but also to, to meet others like themselves, whether to form friendships or romantic and sexual entanglements. Many of the bars and clubs would exclude Black, Hispanic, Native, or Asian people. GAI would work to combat the segregated queer spaces. Large gatherings of their members would come together and all go to a bar at once to demand entry and service. Barbara Cameron was clear in how she viewed this problem. Colonialism was, by default, a divisive force. Her lesbian and Lakota aspects of her personhood were not in conflict with each other. She would comment about this, saying, Marginality can become a stance which permits us a broader perspective, with input from two or more cultures, and therefore with the potential for new insights which can produce creative change in the larger society. Her Lakota and lesbianness were working together to take down the oppressive and dismissive nature of the wider, white, heteronormative American colonial culture. In 1977, GAI members would join over 300,000 queer folks at San Francisco's Gay Freedom Day Parade. It was during this time that everyone's favorite bigot, Anita Bryant, would start her homophobic crusade to, quote, save our children. It is interesting how often this phrase is used to discriminate against people, and, more often than not, it is actual children who suffer the most from the salvation of bigotry. Anyhow, banners were carried in the parade that thanked her for her hard work, 
as it was only bringing queer people from various racial groups together in a common cause. Two years later, in 1979, J.I. would march in Washington, D.C. at the National March for Lesbian and Gay Rights. Just a few days prior to the event, march organizers called for a Third World Conference in an attempt to show good faith and good politics toward minority gays. Needless to say, Barbara Cameron found the language problematic. While their hearts may have been in the right place, it is clear that queer Indians would have to continue in earnest to speak for themselves. In the lesbian-slash-gay community, I have been the only Indian political activist for many years, Barbara would write. I bring up issues important to Indians so that others will learn, and perhaps begin to get a different understanding of this country they are living in. I feel that that last part needed extra emphasis. First Americans are in every state in this union, but are rarely thought of as anything more than a historical footnote. We should probably start out the 1980s with positivity first, because so much of that decade was filled with tragedy. In Barbara's life, she would meet her partner of 21 years, Linda Boyd. The two would raise a son together, Reese Boyd Farrell. She would need the love and support of her family to deal with the events to come. It was in the 1980s that Ronald Reagan was elected to be president of the United States. For most queer folks, this was nightmarish. The moral majority and their avatars, such as Phyllis Schlafly, Pat Robertson, Anita Bryant, and other far-right reactionaries, had successfully swept the actor into the White House, and so ushered in a decade of backtracking on social and political gains that had been made over the decades prior. The need to continue organizing was evident. Barbara would comment on the situation thusly, quote, we have the responsibility to not remain silent. Under the Reagan administration, cuts were made to the budgets of native education and healthcare. Of course, this would only exacerbate the other dark cloud that would descend upon the wider LGBTQIA community, which was, of course, HIV-AIDS. Matters were also not helped by the fact that AIDS was seen as something affecting only white gay men. In news reports, images of young, virile, white gay men were used as uh, a juxtaposition to the new realities for these men, as their current features were now gaunt, heavily drawn, and often covered in dark lesions. Referring to the pandemic as a gay cancer, or gay virus, helped to quickly reverse a great many strides forward that the queer community had made. Ronald Reagan, for his part, did not even say HIV or AIDS for years, 
and he would continue to surround himself with evangelicals who were quick to thank the Almighty for sending a plague to destroy the wicked sinners. Any real research into treatments or vaccines were not given the priority that they demanded, since the victims were seen to be deserving of this divine punishment. Barbara would have to remain resilient against this new onslaught. She was having to battle against not only a homophobic society, but also those within the queer community who parroted the right-wing talking points and the dangerous stereotypes that were putting more people in danger. Sadly, one of her dear friends and a fellow activist that I mentioned earlier, Phil Tingley, a gay Kiowa man originally from Oklahoma, would lose his life to AIDS. She would say of this in 1983, It is sickening that in a time of uncertainty that we have these individuals who are not AIDS patients, but indeed have become AIDS victims. These individuals become ministers of doom in our community, perpetuating lies about our community, invoking stereotypes and myths of the gay lifestyle. While criticizing disinformation was also involved with reaching out to others to form community, whether within Indian country or to groups outside of it, she saw this as reclaiming family, humanity, and dignity. If you've ever seen Adobe Homes, you know its design is for multi-dwellings, she would say. You can always add to an Adobe. It's connected in all its different levels and it is in harmony with the environment. This work would mean taking on colonial concepts that were wrecking Native communities, such as Western thought and American-style Christianity that reinforced homophobia and cut off queer Natives from family and friends. I've heard straight Indian people talk about homosexuality as a white man's disease, she would say in 1991. But it's homophobia that is the white man's disease. Reconnecting queer native people to their cultures and stories were important. She would continue in that 1991 speech. It's important for us as Indian people as we reclaim and revitalize our languages and traditions to include the heritage and contributions of Indian lesbians and gay men, to know and understand that being lesbian or gay is an Indian tradition. Again, Native people do not live in the past. They live and grow and change with each passing day. Likewise, it would mean reaching out to non-Native groups to fight for mutual causes, such as the HIV pandemic, and discrimination. Part of connecting people to their own history was to embrace the ways in which queer natives existed both in the past and how they would be in the future. In Canada, in August of 1990, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, that conference was held that endeavored to do just this very thing. It was here that the term Two-Spirit was adopted 
as a category to understand the different ways of being that exist within the various First American nations. It was a pan-tribal term that both connected various cultures in Indian country, but also carved out space for queer people to reacquaint themselves with the various gender roles and sexual identities that were unique to them. It was also a way to make the battles against both homophobia and racism visible to people who are both native and non-native. In 1988, she was appointed to Citizens Committee on Community Development and the San Francisco Human Rights Commission by then-Mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, who recently passed away. In 1992, she would be given the Harvey Milk Award for Community Service. In many ways, San Francisco seems to be both a small town as well as a nexus of history. Anyway, she would spend her remaining years traveling across the country, educating tribes about HIV-AIDS, and working on essays and a screenplay, which was sadly never completed. Barbara Cameron died of natural causes on the 12th of February, 2002, at the age of 47. At her memorial service, she was remembered for her hard work, advocacy, and inspiration. Well, that was quite a life, if I do say so myself. It is sad that she died so young, but with all that she did, it seems that she packed a few lifetimes into her own. And I think that we are all the better for her efforts and determination. I hope all of you enjoyed hearing about the life of this amazing woman. If you're looking for more queer First American stories, I'd like to recommend a book by Gregory Smithers, and it's titled Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal, and Sovereignty in Native America. It's a really well put together uh, story of the broad history of two-spirit people and their struggles and successes as their worlds were shaken up by the manifest destiny of the United States. As I mentioned at the beginning of this show, this is the last official episode of the first season. Now I say official because there will be a little Christmas time bonus to drop on the 20th of December. I mean, we could not end the season without putting a little bit of something in your stocking. As far as the second season, we will be back in February of 2024. There are all sorts of fun ideas swirling around in my tiny head that I think will be enjoyable, informative, and entertaining. If you have any comments, critiques, or suggestions, you can send an email to historymostqueer at gmail.com and come by the Instagram page at historymostqueer to see images of this week's episode. You can also message me here. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and warm. I look forward to the Christmas special and to the second season that will debut on the 7th of February, 2024. Until then, bye-bye.
Woo! <laughs>